Welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach, and we're glad that you're here. I'll be joined in just a moment by this week's guest, but before that, I want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project. All of our content here at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way. But we rely upon the contributions of our listeners in order to do so. You will never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost money to put a show like this together, so if you find what we're doing here valuable and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going, and it helps us reach other men just like you. God's blessings, fellas. Enjoy the show. gentlemen, my name is Charlie Ungemach. I'm the founder and curator of Gird Up. I am also the host of Gird Up, and you're listening to Man Talk Monday. This week, as you saw in the title, we're talking about the real history of the roles of men and women. So in general, the narrative about the roles of men and women in our culture at the moment is that uh, from the dawn of civilization, really, women have been forced to be pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen and stay there where men are allowed to go out and work and have fun and have a life of their own and so forth. And it's painted as a picture of um, women being trapped in a home, women being forced to stay in a home, not of their own choosing. If they had their way, they would be out doing all the things men do and probably doing it better. And that men have over time forced women to remain in the home. And the only reason that they're still in the home is because men have made them be there. Okay. That's kind of the character of what we've got going on. And frankly, this is a fairly accurate, although a very cynical character of America, of the United States in the post-war years, really even the whole uh, Western world in the post-war years, but specifically in the United States after World War II, because you have a, a perfect storm of like a thriving post-war economy, benefits for veterans, a baby boom, um, inexpensive housing, um, all these new like modern amenities and technologies that are making life easier and easier. And what it essentially did is create a moment in time when women were generally expected to be in the home by society, by their husbands, even by each other. They're expected to be in a home, but they actually have very little to do in a home, especially if they don't have young children at home. And so this ends up resulting in what we now see as the modern feminist movement, uh, which certainly has a relationship with the women's suffrage movement of the early 20th century, but doesn't have the kind of continuity that modern feminists want us to believe that there is. So they claim a true continuity all the way through. Uh, women have always wanted the same thing, but that's not necessarily true. And so what, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. And then we'll finish out the podcast by talking about what... Um, the roles of men and, our, men and women are supposed to look like what God's designed for marriage or for the relationship between men and women to look like. Um, really, what we're going to talk about is the way things ought to be uh, after we talk about the way things are at the moment. Okay? Um, so if we're going to talk about the history of the roles of women, men and women, we got to start at the very beginning. Uh, so it would be like ancient times, pre-recorded history, right? Um, and we all, we've, we've all passed second grade social studies class, so we're all at least familiar with um, what that model has 
has looked like before um, before modern industrialization had happened. Um, so in ancient times, generally, the arrangement was that men would go out and fight and hunt and build, etc. And women would stay home and they would gather, they would rear children, and they would cook, maybe even they would farm. Okay? So you have the men out there doing out there things. You have the women in here doing in here things. So the men are going out there hunting for meat. They're finding protein. They're fighting battles to protect their village. They are building houses and buildings and things like that. Barns to keep their food in. Those kinds of things. Women are responsible for gathering um, vegetation that they can eat. They're responsible for rearing children. They're responsible for being around the campfires and cooking and doing things like that. Right? Generally acceptable. Nobody really raises a fuss about that because from an evolutionary standpoint, it's exactly where they needed to be. That's where they wanted to be because the men were out there doing um, the protecting and the hunting. Now, as we begin to organize as humans into societies, this is where people start to have a problem with the, what the roles of men and women look like. So um, as humans begin to organize themselves into societies, whether that be the ancient Sumerians um, in the first recorded societies or moving in towards the future, even think about uh, different areas of the world that had great cities, anywhere outside of the city, this continues to be true. Um, and so that generally after... Uh, humans start organizing themselves into societies. The model that you have then is men who practice some sort of trade. So they labor, they farm, they build perhaps, but they have some sort of trade. And then women stay home and manage the household. So the household really takes on two um, main responsibilities. The first would be like cooking, cleaning, and managing the household. The second would be to raise and rear a family. Um, And so first of all, cooking, cleaning, managing the household, each one of these things is actually far more involved than I think we recognize or even imagine. Um, You just think about what it would take to preserve food for winter, especially if you're in an area that um, crops don't grow all year round. So whether that be like sub-Saharan Africa where crops don't grow because it's a dry season or somewhere like the Midwest where we live, where I live up here, where there is a severe winter where crops don't grow. Think about what it takes to preserve food for the winter. Um, This is where we get things like preserves. This is where we get things like pickles, right? This is where we get anything that you get in a can traditionally, canned baked beans, things like that. Those all have their roots in preserving food for winter. Um, And so you think about, let's talk about pickles, for example. Not only do you have to grow the cucumbers to actually use in pickles, um, but then you have to make vinegar, which is no simple, easy process. You also have all the spices and things. You also need to have something to store them in, right? And you got to reuse those jars from one year to the next. Uh, so that's part of the responsibility as well. Um, you you can't just go to the faucet and turn on the faucet and get water. You have to go down to a well or you need to go to a well pump. You need to pump out water or carry water back to the house to use for cooking, right? Um, You also have very primitive tools in many situations in societies, even up until um, like modern, like uh, uh, the United States uh, throughout the 18th century, or yeah, the 18th and 19th centuries, you still have fairly crude tools that people are doing all of this with. Um, So it's it's a very involved process is my point. The same thing would be true for making and repairing like clothing and household goods. 
um, and also cleaning and maintaining all the old technology as well. So everything from seasoning pots and pans and keeping them in good shape to making and repairing your own clothing. Uh, if you think about uh, um, your husband is out um, doing uh, he's doing farm work out in the field, his clothing is going to end up with tears and holes and things in it, and you either have to make him new clothes or continue to patch the clothes that he's already wearing. Same thing is true for children. If you have kids, you know how quickly they go through their clothes and how quickly they grow out of their clothes. So this is a big part of the job as well as a housewife is making and repairing clothing and all kinds of household goods, everything from toys to cooking, um, like cooking utensils, things like that. Um, so it is really quite an evolved process. It becomes even more involved than when you think about what it takes to rear and raise a family um, and think about a network of women as well. So these women are working together in networks in order to raise their families. Um, generally, families have more children in them than they do now. Right now, the average is less than two. Um, at the time, their average would have been between three and four children per family that survive into adulthood. So you have even more children than that that are actually at home. If you've been around a toddler, again, you know how difficult a toddler can make getting anything at all done other than watching the toddler. Um, and they have to be managed in a household like we just talked about while they're raising their children. At the same time, school is either inconsistent or non-existent at all. And many of the school years were short. Children were also expected to show up at school with some basic knowledge. So you couldn't just send your child to kindergarten to learn their ABCs. You needed to teach them your ABCs before they go off to school. What the schoolmaster does is he teaches things that the um, parent at home is either not doesn't have an expertise in or is unable to teach themselves. You don't pay a schoolmaster to teach things that you yourself can teach your children or are capable of teaching your children. And so there is a significant amount of, ed of education going on at home as well. You also don't have anything such as baby formula or diapers, right? So you have to be tending to your child constantly. You're not throwing diapers away. You're washing diapers and reusing them. You also don't have baby formula. So if you're a mother, you have to continually nurse the child. If you have more than one child in the nursing stage, man... I, okay, first of all, I understand that you stop nursing while you're pregnant, so don't shout at me for that. Um, but it is possible that you'd have more than one child who's nursing at any given time. That also requires that you keep the child um, close by so you can continue to feed the child. And generally, children would nurse for longer back in the day than they do now. You also don't have daycare. So if you have a big project you need to get done or if you need to be without children for a while, then you take your child to somebody else's house or somebody else's farm or whatever it might be. And now they're not getting anything done, so they're probably going to need a day where they bring their kids to you, right? So while you do have women working in networks, right, it still is an incredibly difficult job being a wife and mother um, and certainly used up all of her time and energy. And this generally continues this trend or this arrangement where men are doing some sort of trade, they're laboring, they're farming, they're building things, right? This generally continues while the women manage the household with the exception of wealthy families, even in urban settings, um, until the Industrial Revolution. So you think about some of the great societies of the ancient world, whether it's the Greeks, whether it's the Romans, even the Babylonians, things like that. If you're wealthy enough, 
then certainly you can live a life of leisure and you have been able to at any time in history. But if you are not wealthy enough to live a life of leisure, you still have to be doing all of these things in order to manage your home. Even if you have some servants, it just increases the number of mouths you need to feed and the number of people that you're taking care of. It might increase the help, but it also increases the number of tasks that need to be accomplished. So um, this is something that is true for thousands of years until the Industrial Revolution um, sets or starts in the Western world and urbanization in, in, in a very real way starts to set in. Now, we have had cities before, don't get me wrong, but uh, the idea that um, the majority of people living in a society live in a city is a new thing that's being introduced by the Industrial Revolution and the urbanization that result from it. So what ends up happening is that there's a very high demand for labor and at the same time a, cr- time, a crackdown on child labor. So there was a significant amount of child labor in the Western world, particularly in the United States and in England. I don't really know much about the, the rest of Europe, but there was a significant amount of child labor. But in the grand scheme of things, this was a very short amount of time before people started to crack down on it. Now, of course, it was an awful long time for the children themselves, but in the grand scheme of history, it's actually a fairly short time where children are working in an industrialized economy as child labor. So with the crackdown on child labor, it makes unskilled labor very, 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 um, well, okay, so th- there's... there. There's a, they need unskilled laborers. I don't really know how I screw. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, they need unskilled laborers, and but unskilled labor is cheap labor. So there's a high demand for unskilled labor, yet unskilled labor is cheap labor and there's very little opportunity for upward no- mobility. People start to realize that and they want to get out of these unskilled labor environments and the best way to keep them there is to provide some sort of pension or benefit, which is what and this is where we begin to see the um, incentives that we see nowadays for people to stay in those jobs. So whether it is benefits, whether it is pensions, um, whether it is uh, a lot of times in the early 20th century or um, late 19th century, you'll even see like company housing, you'll see company hospitals, company schools. If they make it easy and enjoyable and pleasant to work for the company, then people will stick around and do good work for them, even though there really isn't any ability to advance. There isn't You don't really have any opportunity for upward mobility in society. They'll still stick around. They'll still continue working for the company because the company is treating them well. Um, of course, the opposite also happens from time to time. But generally, um, the uh, fact that there is a massive labor market and the demand for labor is actually a good thing for workers. Uh, at the same time, industry is now producing all the goods and products that women had been traditionally making in their own homes. Um, so that combined with massive urbanization, uh, managing household affairs actually became a very simple and less time-consuming task. But now it's more expensive, like the cost of living goes up because you have to buy all the things that you used to be making. So women used to be staying home and cooking and cleaning and uh, making clothing and putting up preserves for winter, all that kind of stuff, right? Now they don't need to do that anymore because they can go to a store and buy it because these things are being made by the industrial machine that is the United States. However, in order to go and buy those things, you need money, right? Now, the men are still out working a trade and making money and doing those types of things, but their income isn't going as far as it used to because 
everything now costs more than it used to because somebody else is making it for you. And what ends up happening is because there's a demand for workers and because the cost of living is going up and because women have less to do in the home itself, women begin to enter the workforce, generally specializing in the workforce in the same functions that they had performed in the home before the Industrial Revolution happened. So you have a lot of women entering um, uh like specialties such as nursing and healthcare, they had been taking care of their elderly relatives, their their children, um, the sick people from the community. They had been taking care of those people already in the home, and now they have an opportunity to do so professionally because there are less people in the home, and that means they need to go somewhere. Well, now you're getting paid to do the same work that you were doing at home. Same thing is true for secretarial work. It doesn't take a lot of education to be able to do secretarial work well. Uh, Many women had that kind of schooling from their parents, from their childhood. And so they were able to do some typing, some clerking, operate a switchboard, operate a telegraph office, things like that. Um, And while it was skilled labor, right, it could still be part-time labor um, and it still um, wasn't like it didn't men weren't competing with women for these jobs, which made it easy for women to work in these jobs. Uh, At the same time, you have a giant boom in both food service and in housekeeping, right? Women are leaving the home, so they have less time to cook and to clean. And so now you pay other women to come into your home and cook and clean for you. The same thing, of course, is also true with textiles. Those, uh, yeah, textiles and manufacture of clothing and other like fabric goods. So everything from bed sheets to children's clothing to suits and ties, all of that still needs to be made. But now you have a smaller group of women manufacturing all of these things. And then, of course, they get sold. And then people that aren't working in textiles, then they're buying textiles so that they have them at home. So you get the picture, right? So women are leaving the home to go work in, you know, not have necessarily careers the way we think of them, but they are going out into the workforce and they're contributing money and they're contributing skill into the workforce and into their own households as well. And this, of course, is also where we start to see women's suffrage, uh, particularly the the American women's suffrage movement, really take off uh, because a lot of women's societies and organizations were established in this time for the purpose of fighting for women's rights in the workplace and in the political world. So um, now that women are in the workforce, they want to be treated fairly, which of course is correct, right? Of course we want women to be treated fairly. So women want to be treated fairly. They also, since they are now working, contributing to society in a different way, they also want the right to vote. And so the women's suffrage movement wins those two um, things for them. So equal, I'm sorry, it gives them rights in the workforce. It also gives them rights in the political world. At the same time, these political organizations, or not political organizations, these women's organizations are filling the void that's kind of left by the breakdown of these communities of women who were raising children together and so forth. They no longer have the social structure that they used to have. So now they're organizing themselves into these cooperative communities, um, which call themselves women's societies and organizations. Um, And so um, you have women who now have independent incomes, who have independent social lives, and have rights in both the political world and the workforce, who are still actively involved in their own home, they're raising their own children, but they're also contributing both to their household and society in ways that they haven't done that before. All that changes after World War II. Women continue to be in the workforce in droves all the way up until World War II, throughout World War II, right? That's when Rosie the Riveter um, is working on airplanes. And when the war is over, 
there is a tremendous influx of young men, servicemen, who have been soldiers, but now they come home and they need jobs. Well, they're going to take, in general, the um, the uh, unskilled labor jobs that the women have been working in, and the young women who have work, been working in those jobs gladly give up those jobs, they go back home, and they get married, and they start having children, right? These women are not being coerced, they're not being forced back into the home. They're choosing to go back into the home because they want to be wives, they want to have children, they want to live the kind of lives that their mothers lived, um, participate in these women's organizations, work a little bit outside the home, help supplement the family income, but also then take care of their husband and keep the house and be a housekeeper and do all those types of things. The difference now is that because the economy is booming, a household can survive on one single income. Women don't need to work. And it becomes a status symbol for a man who is working to say, hey, honey, you don't have to go to work. You can stay home because I make enough to cover all the bills. So now we have a situation where because there is a... Um, there is an influx of new technology which makes life easier for everybody. So you're thinking about everything from washing machines and um, typewriters and calculators and um, electric toasters and indoor plumbing. Like All of these things become commonplace, which save women a whole lot of time and effort while they're housekeeping. So all of their time and effort is not being used for housekeeping anymore but they're being told they don't need to go work and because they're not working for themselves they don't have they don't have an income of their own and very quickly women particularly who don't have children or who have very few children whose children are in school you get the the idea they find themselves to be purposeless right and this purposelessness that women in the 50s experience very quickly becomes or sets down roots and becomes the li women's liberation movement and the modern feminist movement that we're familiar with now. And the more you think about that, the more it starts to make sense that women would be unhappy with such an arrangement. Um, it sounds nice to us, I think, in our, with our modern eyes to look back at um, the 50s and say, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to just be able to stay home and, uh, you know, cook three meals a day, drop the kids off at school, and then have the whole rest of the day to myself. But... Um, when that's your reality and when you're being told that you don't really have another choice, it does make sense that after a while you get fed up with that arrangement. And that's essentially what ended up happening is women want to be contributing. They're not allowed to be contributing. Of course, I'm putting the positive spin on this, right? They want to be contributing. They're not allowed to be contributing. Um, they also want freedom. Everybody wants some freedom and autonomy, but they're not being allowed freedom and autonomy either because they have to be essentially asking their husband for money because he's the one that's making money. Um, and on top of all that, you have a generation of men who have come back from war, their PTSD and things like that aren't being recognized, and they have control of all the finances. There's a massive, um, there's a massively high rate of abuse happening in the 1950s in homes as well. We don't talk about it very much because it's not the, the fun version of the 1950s that we like to imagine in movies, but the reality is there was rampant abuse in the 1950s in homes, more probably than there even is now, because women were expected to stay home, they had very little responsibility, they had a lot of time on their hands, and they don't have an income.
Okay, you put all those things together, it's a pot that's eventually going to boil over, and that's what ends up happening. Right, and uh, so now we have a a women's movement, the feminist movement, whatever you want to call it, in society at the moment, which is all about the. I mean, they use terms like liberation of women or women's rights, things like that. Uh, but what we end up seeing throughout the '60s and '70s is uh, the sexual revolution. So there's sexual freedom. Women are saying that they're taking back their own bodies. Right, I can use my body as I want to. Same thing is happening as women go out into the workforce. More and more and more of them are going out into the workforce and having fewer and fewer children, which means that it's not as big of a deal to drop off one or two kids in daycare and go off to work. Um, At the same time, the economy doesn't stay as good as it had been in the 1950s. And so soon it is required that two, I mean, at this point in American society, it generally is expected that you're going to have two incomes of some kind in a in a nuclear family, right? Um, and so we have. Well, you're very familiar with the uh, with the <laughs> with the political environment at the moment. I need I don't need to explain to you what modern feminism looks like, um, but don't be too frustrated because in Christian circles, even now, we generally see a rebellion against uh, feminism. Actually, really, in a conservative world. Um, but particularly among religious communities and political conservatives, there is a rebellion against the modern feminist movement, and uh, it's growing, and it's growing quickly. If you're a TikTok person, there's been a big trend on TikTok of, uh, of trad wives. They call themselves the traditional wives, um, and they're longing for a return to the way things were in the past. The, the interesting thing is, if you really listen to them, these women who are rebelling against the modern feminist movement, they're not longing for a return to the state of affairs that we find in the 1950s, they're actually looking to be even more traditional than that and talking about being the kinds of wives that we see at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or even earlier. So they do actively participate in the economy. They contribute income to the family, um, but they also generally are stay-at-home mothers who are housekeepers. That doesn't mean that they're not involved in anything else. Um, And so a lot of these women are... um, actually um, looking for the kind of arrangement where they have the freedom to rear and raise a family and raise their children themselves with with the support of a husband, right, who's actively playing a role as the father and the husband. Um, and they want to contribute to the family by managing the household really well and finding ways to support and supplement when they can. Uh, and so when you think about it from that perspective, that is the traditional role of a wife. It's actually some of the more radical feminists who are the ones who want to be a quote-unquote trophy wife for the sugar daddy who can just stay home or frankly, be about town with no responsibility. It's not traditional women that want that. Traditional women don't want to necessarily be taken care of or whatever words you, I mean, they do want to be taken care of, but they don't want to be the trophy wife who just sits at home and doesn't do anything. It's actually the most progressive women who want such a thing, right? Not the traditional wife, not the traditional woman. Um, And so in Christian circles, this is a very common theme that we want to return to the way things used to be. 
uh, I think the issue in Christian circles is that we have a very unclear understanding of what biblical marriage actually looks like. So I want to talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, Generally, in Christian circles, we are presented with two different options for Christian marriage, right? Uh, The first is a headship model. I put that in quotation marks because it's really a misnomer uh, because what people will often call a headship model doesn't really accurately reflect the doctrine of headship that we see in scripture whatsoever. But essentially what they're talking about is a situation where the man is the authoritarian head of the house and the wife is subservient to him. So he's in charge. She essentially belongs to him. And I, I don't like saying it that way, but that is the arrangement that they kind of have going on. This is what you often see in like Mormon families and very, very, very traditional um, like Southern Baptist families, things like that. He calls all the shots. He's the one in charge. They are not equal partners. He is the man, and she is the woman, and those lines don't get crossed. That's not a biblical mind. That's not a biblical model of a relationship between a man and a woman. That's not what it means to be one flesh. The other um, Christian ideal that's often presented to us, I think, a lot of times by the more evangelical um, church bodies in particular, is this idea of a complementary marriage. So the idea that when you hear words like complementarian, it sounds really good because it paints a picture where men and women have their distinct and clear roles in marriage. Um, And generally, those roles are going to be very similar from one marriage to the next. The problem with this is it promotes a kind of a stay-in-your-lane mentality and doesn't consider the skills and aptitudes of the actual individuals involved in the marriage. So you do the man stuff, I do the woman stuff, you stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. That might not be a model that fits you and your spouse very well at all. And it doesn't really give you a lot of autonomy to make your own decisions as a couple or even by yourself. Neither of these is a true biblical model of marriage. A true biblical marriage model is one that is ruled primarily by the law of love. Right? So you do have the concept of biblical headship here at play, um, but while God does call men to be the head of the family, God never calls or commands a woman of faith to submit herself to a man who does not know and love God above all things and recognize God as his head. And a man who is submitted to Christ and actively working towards living as a man after God's own heart isn't going to be a perfect leader, but he is going to be a good leader who the woman is willing to follow. A woman who is also fully submitted to Christ and walking in the way of life will not see submission to that kind of a man, a man who is fully submitted to Christ as a burden, but as a sacrifice joyfully made. Right? We need to recognize as men the radical sacrifice that young women make when they choose to marry us. Right. Um, if a woman is single and unmarried in the church, right? So she's a Christian woman, she's single, she's not married. Who is she required to submit to? She's required to submit to Christ and Christ's representative in the church. And you really think about it, there's very little oversight in a single woman's life that's provided by the church. And that I'm not I'm not saying that in a bad way. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. She has a tremendous amount of autonomy and independence, especially in our modern culture, to do whatever she wants. And she has a tremendous ability to do wonderful things for the sake of the church, for the sake of the community. She can do whatever she wants on any given day. There's a whole lot of freedom she's giving up when she willingly says, this man is the man I am willing to become subservient to. I am willing to surrender my power. I'm willing to submit to this man 
for the rest of my life. That is a shocking act of selflessness because, I mean, think about it. When she takes your name, obviously it's a symbol that she's now joining your family. But think about what that really means. When she's joined to you as one flesh, she is now one with you. You are one unit. She ceases to exist the way that she has before, and now she is bonded to you. You are not being asked to become a part of her family. Of course, it's a blessing and a wonderful thing if you are an active part of the family she comes from. But she now bears your last name. She is your representative in the world. What she does reflects on you. What you do reflects on her. You guys are one now. She's now set down her own identity and become a part of your identity as the man of the house, as her husband. That is a massive sacrifice. And you owe that woman a debt, a debt to love her well, to love her the way Christ loved the church, to even die for her if that becomes necessary. right? And that means everything in between as well. So do the little things for her, like take out the trash. Do the big things for her, like show up for her when she needs you emotionally, spiritually. Be a, a positive leader in your household. Make sure that she is spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally fed and nourished and cared for. These are all your responsibility as the man of the house. Now, a lot of times we get chastised as Christians for declaring men as the head of the household, even though that's what it says in Scripture. There's a lot of Christians that don't want that because they say, ah, you know, and they point out anecdotal um, situations where men abdicate their role as um, the leader that God made them to be. I want to make it really, really clear, and I'm going to keep saying it again and again. God never calls or commands a woman of faith to submit herself to a man who does not know and love God above all things. God does not ask women to submit to men who don't love him. God does not ask women to submit themselves to men who don't see themselves as accountable before the throne of God for their behavior in a relationship. Many of the women who have a hard time with these relationships and with this language have attached themselves to men who do not see themselves as accountable to God. Whether they are in the Christian church or not, right? They don't recognize that God is the authority who governs their life and they will on the last day. This isn't like a, this isn't like a a, a metaphor or cute language or something. You will, on the last day, stand before the throne of God and give an account for what you have done during your life. And that includes in your marriage. And you, as the man, are going to do that. When you recognize that and behave as such, now that is the kind of man God calls a woman to submit herself to. But she has a choice of to whether or not she's willing to do that. Once she stands before the altar and you put a ring on her finger and she says, I do, now it's something she is commanded to do by God. She's not commanded to do that unless she chooses to do so. Okay, So in, uh, in our society where marriage generally is something that's consented on between a man and his wife, so we're not, we don't have a lot of arranged marriages and things like that, right? Women are making a tremendous sacrifice to become a part of your family as a man. Recognize that, love her for it, and be the leader that she deserves. Okay. With that in mind, 
a true biblical marriage model okay, doesn't need to be as strict as we often um, want to make it. The man is the head of the house, right? It is his responsibility to make sure everybody is protected, provided for, and it's his responsibility to preside over his house. But they also are given Christian freedom and flexibility to decide what works best for them as a couple, okay? You are one flesh. She represents the company, right? She now bears your name. You guys work together to figure out how your house is going to run. You're ultimately accountable for what happens in your home, but you guys work together to make sure that your home runs smoothly. And your relationship with your wife and the way you run your home might look different than the people down the street. You figure out what works for you okay, as a man who loves his Savior and loves his wife. That also gives you the flexibility to adjust and change over time because people don't stay the same forever. And situations that families are in don't change forever. Things are going to change over time. Be willing to change with them. Okay, that's what leaders do. We all have our ups and downs. Be willing to make those adjustments as the days go on. I love you guys. I continue to be amazed that you listen to my rants. I hope that they are beneficial for you and to you. If you have questions, if you have a topic you want to talk about, if you want to argue with me about something I said in the podcast today, feel free to shoot me an email. All that information is down in the show notes below. I love you, gentlemen. Go be the men that God created you to be. Be the good husbands and fathers and boyfriends and spouses and you know whatever else your roles are. Be the medic I created to be. We'll talk to you next week. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms, and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content, too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.